The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, this is DeRay. And welcome to Potsy of the People. This episode, there's a lot going on. So we have Terrell McSweeney, one of two commissioners on the Federal Trade Commission. We also have Melvin Carter, who is a candidate to be the next mayor of St. Paul, Minnesota. And then we have the news with me, Brittany, Sam, and Clint, as always. Before we get in, I'll just say a word about asking the right question. So we know that questions often frame the way that people enter into conversations and certainly the way that they think about the solutions. And that choosing the right question and rejecting the wrong question is is actually a lot of power and it's important. So people ask all the time, how do we build trust between communities and law enforcement? And the reality is that that's the wrong question. We should reject that question. That the right question is how do we make sure that law enforcement earns the respect and trust of communities? And the importance of that reframing is that it puts a responsibility where the responsibility should lie. And that's with law enforcement, that communities and law enforcement are not equally responsible in these moments. The law enforcement has the power. They have the institutional backing to inflict good or pain in communities. They're responsible for doing things that allow people to trust them if that's possible at all in some circumstances. So my message to you this week is to reject the bad questions, to be thoughtful about how you frame the question, because the question often frames how we think about the problem itself and the solution. And now the news with me, Brittany Pagnett, a former member of the Ferguson Commission, appointed by President Obama to the Task Force on 21st Century Policing and an incredible leader in education. We have Samuel Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist, and Clint Smith III, our resident academic. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Pagnett at Ms. Pagnetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. And this is DeRay at DeRay, uh, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. So this is a big week in news, uh, a lot going on. Before we start that, though, I'll just say, Sam, happy that you could join us. We know that you are in, you're somewhere in Europe, you're in Venice, I think, when we're recording this. So, Yep. Yeah, it's been a, a hectic couple of days. So I was supposed to be in Prague and missed the flight because it turns out the airports are ridiculous. And if you have anything in your bag that is, even if it's travel size, if there's any liquid and you don't take it out, they basically take up 20 to 25 minutes of your time, like digging through everything in your bag and make you miss your flight. So that's what I experienced. And uh, luckily in Europe, you can get to pretty much any European country for like $50. And so decided to go to Venice instead of Prague. So here I am. Well, Sam, Prague's loss is our gain. We're glad you're here. Did anybody actually read how Paul Manafort is accused of spending the $18 million that he potentially laundered over three years? So much of it was on clothing, nearly a million dollars on antique rings. But after all that, only $20,000 on housekeeping over three years. Uh, I don't even know if that's minimum wage. It doesn't sound like it is. And that uh, if that's really the case, that in and of itself is criminal. Add it to the list. And that's why trickle-down economics does not work. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Did y'all see the dude, the, there's a George Papadopoulos who's like some random CPA in Michigan 
who like everybody keeps tweeting at and they're like you monster how could you you traitor to this country and this is just like some dude who shares the same name as the dude who lied to the fbi and it's just been funny to watch because he's like stop tweeting at me i am not affiliated with the trump administration and so it's a hard day out here for all the all the george papadopoulos of the world it is weird when that happens when somebody just has the same name Manafort was rolling in the dough. You know, it's been interesting. I'd love to know what, what you all say. There were so many people on the left who were like, this is a distraction. You know, people don't vote based on Russia. Like, we need to focus on domestic policy only. And then it comes out that, like, something happened. We don't know the extent of what happened yet, but something clearly happened. What do you say to all those people who were like, the left is, this is a distraction. We shouldn't focus on Russia. This doesn't matter. Well, I mean, I think it is interesting because they're sort of right, right? Like, they... On the one hand, they're right in that I don't think people are going to vote based on Russia to a larger extent that they will vote based on their healthcare getting taken away or losing a job. But in the end of the day, like I wouldn't be surprised at all if Trump pardons Manafort and pardons all of these people and gets away with it. And so I don't think this is going to be like the magical solution uh, to removing Trump or holding Trump accountable. Um, but it is still important that there is some level of accountability still, uh, despite everything that's happened. Yeah, I think anyone who's under operating under the belief that that Mueller is is like our single hope in getting Trump uh, out of office is is sort of deluding themselves. What Mueller does is completely separate from any sort of like uh, political action that has to happen to get him removed. And certainly one can put pressure on the other and there's a relationship between the two. But that should not be the means by which we're thinking about uh defeating Trump or getting uh, Congress back in 2018, I think, to your broader point, I think we have to do a better job of just like holding multiple truths at once and being able to like, it, it can't be that everything is a distraction from everything else. And we just have to recognize that we are in the midst of a very unique time in which there is a lot of new, I mean, in the last 24 hours, like seven different things have happened that in any other recent political moment would have been like the biggest story of the month. Right. But those all, those things all happened within the last 18 hours. And so we, we're just in this new moment where we have to be able to hold, you know, juggle a bunch of balls at one time, as, as one would say. I really think the language of distraction in and of itself is deeply problematic when in reality, Nearly everything this administration is doing is costing someone. It's costing taxpayers when he doesn't govern and instead decides to golf. It is costing young people and the safety that they feel in their schools and institutions when bullying is such an an acceptable form of communication from the White House on down. Everything from policy to the rhetoric of this administration is affecting someone, often marginalized people, people of color, LGBTQIA folks, etc. And I unfortunately find myself very frustrated with a lot of people who claim to work in social justice, but call everything that comes out of this White House that doesn't have anything to do with election hacking a distraction. Uh, it's really uh, a lie, right? Because these things affect a lot of people, even if they don't affect you and your privileges. And so I think it's really dangerous language to call everything a distraction. I couldn't agree with you more, Clint. And at the end of the day, we say all the time, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. So that's exactly what we need to do. We, of course, have to remain judicious and strategic about how we take on 
various issues, how we prioritize and how we set an order of operations. But we can't keep telling people that the things that affect them every single day are mere distractions when they affect people's lives. Speaking of the election and the multiple things that affected it, Pew Research and Elon University did a study over summer of 2014 where they reached out to scholars, practitioners, technologists, and others to ask about this thing that we call fake news, but in the research world, they called the uh, information ecosystem. Uh, And so given the rise of fake news, they essentially asked all of these experts if they believe fake news can be handled in 10 years or not. Here was the exact question. In the next 10 years, will trusted methods emerge to block false narratives and allow the most accurate information to prevail in the overall information ecosystem Or will the quality and veracity of information online deteriorate due to the spread of unreliable, sometimes even dangerous, socially destabilizing ideas? So they asked, will fake news improve or will it not improve? And as a consumer of fake news, the response, quite frankly, is a bit scary to me. 51% of people said that it will not improve. 49% of people said it will improve. So it's a pretty even split here amongst the people who are experts on this. Amongst the 49 who said it will improve, they believe technology can fix these problems. They also believe that it's human nature to come together and use all of our resources to fix said problems. Uh, Of the 51% who said it will not improve, Some of the themes were that fake news uh, essentially aligns with some of our deepest human instincts. So while one group said it's human nature to come together and fix this, others said it's human nature not to because of the way that fake news is structured. Um, And others who said it will not improve said that basically we're not wired as human beings to keep up with the rate of change and the pace of technological change that allows fake news to persist. Um, So I don't necessarily have an opinion on this. I'm still searching my brain for how I feel about this and what I believe needs to be done. But I did want to put it before us as we've been talking a lot in society about how fake news affected the 2016 election. But we really have to be clear about how it can affect future elections and so much more around social change moving forward. Uh, I will end with a quote from one of the respondents, Tom Rosenstiel. He said, misinformation is not like a plumbing problem you can fix. It is a social condition like crime that you must constantly monitor and adjust to. So again, no clear opinion for me, but I did want to bring it forth for us to talk about. Yeah, it's it's wild that I'm sort of on the fence here because I could see it going both ways. Um, you know, on the one hand, you see technology advancing and sort of outpacing the capacity and the thoughtfulness of the platforms that are creating and leading that technological change. So uh, one of the big things that's happening now has to do with augmented reality, where you can basically, you know, create, I don't know what they call it, like a digital puppet or you know, it's like a video that looks like a real video of somebody, you know, it could be a world leader, it could be, you know, Obama or Putin or Trump or whatever talking and saying something, but actually it's not actually them saying that they just created that using new technology. Uh, And so fake news could get even more uh, convincing than it currently is as technology advances. But on the other hand, I think about you know, there are actually not that many companies that control the large part of the digital media ecosystem. You know, it's basically, you, know, you can name six to eight companies that control all of that, whether it is, you know, Facebook, Twitter, uh, whether it is larger companies like Comcast and others. 
And if they all got together and really committed to addressing this issue, they could do that. Like, it's not impossible. It's not like the technology doesn't exist to address it. It's about the will and it's about how much pressure is put on these companies to actually make those changes. So I could see it going either way. And I think it's, it's up to us to, to sort of bend that trajectory in the right direction. This thing that you're saying about will is exactly where my greatest fears lie. I mean, don't you think that the political will actually will never come? When you talk about media companies that are in control of these messages, more and more every single day, media companies are becoming media conglomerates. And those conglomerates need congressional approval in order uh, to pursue those massive mergers that we've been seeing all over the place. So my fear is that the political will will actually not exist to, to fix this problem because politicians will want to preserve fake news that benefits them and that does not benefit the people. Yeah, I think Congress should take a leadership role in this. However, you know, seeing how Congress has been acting and uh, in many ways, there hasn't even been consensus uh, across the aisle that fake news is a real problem worth addressing. Uh, and so, you know, if that's the case, it's hard to see Congress actually coming together and doing something about this, like every other issue, like gun control and, and all of these other issues that are really important. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately, I think that this will have to be something that uh, that communities organize around and put pressure on digital media companies to do. Uh, you know, a lot of advocacy and lobbying goes towards Congress. Uh, a lot less goes towards these companies, towards uh, sh- shaping how they receive their revenue, putting pressure on them in different ways, economic and otherwise, to make a difference. And I think that has to be a part of our strategy because these companies are just as powerful uh, as politicians are. Uh, and they're in- increasingly powerful by the day as they continue to monopolize that information ecosystem. Yeah, and I just wanted to reground this a little bit. So I know that we often talk about fake news in the context of the 2016 election and then a lot of, you know, what uh, what has come in the sort of subsequent weeks and months um, since then. But but uh, there was some reporting done out of the New York Times last week um, that I thought was really important to understand the sort of global implications of this. And so for the uh, Rohingya Muslims, I, I apologize to anyone if I'm mispronouncing it. I know there are a lot of different ways to to pronounce um, that ethnic group, but the Rohingya Muslims, um, which are uh, an ethnic minority in Myanmar that have been subjected to brutal violence and mass displacement, um, they have experienced a sort of onslaught of violence that is fueled in part by misinformation and propaganda that is spread on Facebook. And so in a lot of these places where uh, technology is a little bit further behind than the United States and more and more people in recent years and even months and weeks, like every day, people are um, sort of catching up to where technology is in the U.S., people getting smartphones, people using Facebook, people using WhatsApp. And in a lot of these places, the notion that it, it becomes increasingly difficult to disentangle information that one receives on their phone via Facebook, which in, in countries like Myanmar is how most people receive their news or WhatsApp, which is how most people communicate from like what is or is not truth. And so there are doctored photos and unfounded rumors that go viral on Facebook or on WhatsApp. And those are even shared by like government and official military accounts that are then used as justification to persecute this this ethnic minority group. And so so I think it's important to understand that like this has implications far beyond the United States and that that like what some people are calling a genocide of an ethnic group in on the other side of the world is fueled in large part by misinformation that uh, is spread through Facebook and Facebook has been really irresponsible honestly in 
in addressing their role and responsibilities in in allowing this sort of uh, unfounded propaganda to continue to spread and and that it has very real implications on people's lives. Like people are dying because of the misinformation that is spreading. There is something too, and Clint, you talk about that, is that one of the things that Facebook has done is that they have a, a campaign that brings the internet to places where there's not the internet and they do it for free or in ways that don't use your data plan and people have access to Facebook. And, and that seems to create more of a responsibility for them to also make sure the ecosystem of information is is equitable and is true. And that your comments made me think about that, Clint. One of the things that was interesting in the article, Brittany, that you bring up were two things. One was about information overload. And it talks about in the face of information overload, our attention spans are actually becoming less and less. In the wake of people's attention spans being challenged, that the coping mechanism is actually to go to entertainment or other lighter fare. So like one of the things that I think Trump is doing so well is that there's just so much content that people are tuning out wholesale, that they're like just going to sort of entertainment type things. And the other thing that the article talks about is, is like ecosystems of trust and trust networks with this idea being that there will be pockets that like you just trust the information that comes out of there and you think of it as true. We think about Fox News as like a trust network for, for bad and the question becomes, like, what are the neutral trust networks? And I think that we are so new in this space about sort of news not being real. Like, whoever thought that Fox would just be putting out propaganda or, like, a bright part. I hadn't imagined that 10 years ago. But this idea of, like, who do you trust and what does that look like? Like, the curators will be really important as we go forward. So my piece of news is... Uh, a comment that was made by Bob McNair, the owner of the Houston Texans, an NFL team, uh, who he was describing the protests uh, of NFL players uh, that have really been this huge piece of conversation to draw attention to the issue of police violence. And he said, we can't have the inmates running the prison. And so, you know, this, of course, uh, itself was egregious and created another sort of round of a conversation about this. And so he actually had to go back and then apologize uh, for what he said. But his apology is also inf- interesting because he says, and I quote, I regret that I used that expression. I never meant to offend anyone and I was not referring to our players. I used a figure of speech that was never intended to be taken literally. I would never characterize our players or our league that way. And I apologize to anyone who was offended by it. And so this is just fascinating because first of all, I mean, he was characterizing the players that way. Like it was quite clear that he was referring to the players and he was saying we can't have inmates running the prison. So that's how he's characterizing the players. And the second piece is just how it was almost like a Freudian slip because, you know, this is actually not the phrase that is commonly used. Uh, I think the phrase has to do with we can't have uh, inmates running the asylum or something like that. Um, And I could be wrong about that, but I've never heard this phrase, we can't have inmates running the prison. Uh, And I think it it really speaks to this whole situation where NFL owners who are almost all white, uh, all white except one, uh, white men, are so obviously and explicitly uh, adopting this stance of uh, that we can basically tell the players whatever we want to tell them. We can tell them not to protest and speak out about racial injustices, uh, and we can get them to comply with whatever uh, demands that we have. Uh, and sort of in a way that is so demeaning to them and demeaning to the cause, uh, and that speaks of this broader issue of white supremacy uh, and the ways in which that power of white supremacy is communicated uh, in industries and in the broader society. 
honestly don't even know what to say or what there's left to say about that comment. I mean, you can't you can't really conjure up something that more explicitly delineates how McNair feels and and McNair honestly is a microcosm for many many of the owners in the NFL but but as you mentioned Sam like he didn't even use the actual phraseology he like specifically switched the inmates and the asylum to the inmates running the prison and like th- there is no there's no way that you can l- legitimate that as being just a sort of slip up when clearly the majority of the players on your team and in the league are black Americans on one level, I appreciate it because it lays bare and is like very clear what has otherwise been a sort of dog whistle or or something that is like understood, but um, sort of acknowledged tacitly. But, you know, and I, and I think that um, it was interesting to watch the response from the Texans. I think they had uh, 30 or 40 players who took a knee, but you could also see aesthetically if you if you looked that it was pretty um, divided in terms of white players and black players kneeling and standing. And, uh, you know, we talk a lot all the time about what it means to uh, to have white folks like engaged in in this work and in the work of racial justice. And uh, it was it was a sort of moment of cognitive dissonance because I was both heartened that the players were uh, standing up for themselves, but also kind of. Uh, disheartened to see that it was as divided uh, racially as it was. And so um, I hope that the conversations in that locker room are um, propelling some of the the athletes to to think about their own positionality as it relates to that that owner and and how they, you know, imagine moving forward, uh, not only individually, but, but collectively as a team. Yeah, I don't have, you know, it's so wild that he said it. It is also, like you said, Clint, indicative of probably a larger sort of culture uh, in the NFL. And he shouldn't be an owner. So my question is, like, what do we do to make the ownership of the NFL more diverse? And if not, then, like, then what does the most aggressive change look like? Because people shouldn't have to play on teams uh, like that. And the NFL is like a closed loop of owners. So they get to decide who comes in and who goes out. Had they picked the commissioner that there doesn't seem to be anybody advocating for the people that make up the majority of the league, which is black people. So, so that's that. And then the second is, uh, emails recently were released by Colin Kaepernick's team, uh, his legal team that highlighted uh, that he actually wasn't invited to these meetings that the NFL had said had been happening about sort of social justice and issues in the league. And, and they even canceled the meeting that was supposed to happen uh, on Monday. So yesterday, if you're hearing this on Tuesday. So there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Colin should be on a team. And and this guy clearly made a racist statement. His weak, weak apologies. He's issued two apologies. Sam read one of them. Um, like make no mention of how wrong this was and he shouldn't be able to have a team. Now, I've been thinking a lot about Colin Kaepernick's formal complaint asserting that it's been a conspiracy between um, owners that has actually kept him out of the league, that has kept him locked out of being a quarterback this season. And I absolutely believe that it's true. Lots of 
NFL fans that I speak to believe that it's true. But it's interesting because a lot of the analysis that came after he took that action was about whether or not he could win that case, whether or not he could actually prove conspiracy to have been true. And I think that it's about something much more deep. And this quote from Bob McNair reminds us of why. When I was thinking about Colin, I went back and was reading a lot of articles about Muhammad Ali and his decision to be a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War and his fight to be able to be licensed once again as a boxer because, of course, they took his license from him once he made this objection uh, and, and that fight for, to be relicensed going all the way to the Supreme Court and it being both about winning that case but also the symbolism of upright black men standing up for their talent, for their gifts, for their humanity, for their dignity um, and recognizing, uh, forcing America, rather, to recognize that a black man is capable of doing more than just running a ball or doing more than just being athletically gifted. Um, and uh, quotes like this are a reminder that so many people, not just owners, but quite frankly, I'd say a lot of fans, simply view the on-field talent as people who are there to run the ball and get a paycheck and go home. Never should they speak. Never should they have an opinion. Never should they uh, be multidimensional human beings. And we see that is true for people of color across multiple industries. It's certainly very pronounced in the NFL. So I'm glad that Colin has taken this particular step, um, not just because I hope that he wins the case, but also because of the statement that it will make to people about this particular industry and this particular sport, that you cannot treat people like they're, quote, inmates uh, in a prison or in an asylum. Um, obviously, the quote in and of itself was disgusting, but it was emblematic of how many people view black men who can run fast or who can throw a ball really well. Um, and Colin and so many other athletes show us that there is way more dimension to all of us and to all of them than we often allow them. So I'm, I'm hopeful about this case. But when I heard the quote, I thought immediately about um, about the case that he's trying to win and about the fact that this is yet again a signal of how people view him and so many others. So in Mother Jones last week, there was a story from Ari Berman, who is one of the best reporters out there on voting rights. Uh, and it begins by telling the story about Andrea Anthony, who's a 37-year-old African-American woman in Wisconsin. And so Miss Anthony lost her driver's license, but she went to her polling place and uh, she went there with an expired Wisconsin state ID and proof of residency, thought that would be enough. Uh, but this was Wisconsin's first major election that required voters, even those who were already registered, to present a current driver's license, passport, or state or military ID to cast a ballot. And Miss Anthony couldn't, despite having, again, been registered and showing up to a correct polling site, uh, couldn't vote because she didn't have uh, the driver's license. And so, as we all know, Trump would go on to win Wisconsin by nearly 23,000 votes. And what's important to note uh, in the context of this state is that uh, it is ranked second in the nation in voter participation in 2008 and 2012, but it saw its lowest ever voter turnout since 2000 in the 2016 election. More than half of the state's decline in turnout occurred in Milwaukee, which Hillary Clinton carried by a 77 to 18 margin, but where almost 41,000 fewer people voted in 2016 than in 2012. And so for some local context, Wisconsin passed some strict voter ID laws in 2011. A federal judge blocked it, uh, noting that 9% of all registered voters did not have the required forms for ID. And 
black voters were almost 50% more likely than white voters to not have these IDs because they were less likely to drive. They uh, were not often able or not as often able to afford the documents required to get an ID uh, and were more likely to have moved from out of state. And so to, to put this in the bigger picture, 22 states have adopted new voting rights restrictions uh, since 2010, and more than half of which first went into effect in 2016. And the 2016 election was the first presidential contest in more than 50 years without the full protection of the Voting Rights Act. And so this has clearly huge implications broadly. And we're, you know, we're having this conversation right now, but when this is in the midst of the Russia investigation and Manafort and Gates and Papadopoulos and, and all of these folks who are hopefully are going to lead us to more information about the Trump campaign's relationship to Russia uh, in the context of the 2016 election. But what we can't forget, and as we kind of mentioned earlier in the podcast, being able to hold multiple things at once, it is true that Russia and what happened and transpired with uh, Russia in relation to the 2016 election is a huge issue that deserves every ounce of our attention. It is also true that voter suppression played in a hugely instrumental role in the 2016 election has played an instrumental role in previous elections and will continue to play an even greater role moving forward as folks on the right realize that the demographics of this country are changing, uh, not in their favor. And so there is going to be an increased um, sort of doubling down on making sure that they are uh, creating district lines for congressional races and and state races that uh, are more suited to to their interest and and to have voting rights uh, voting restrictions rather that make it more difficult for people on the left mostly the poor people of color and other folks who who do not align with their their sort of larger political orientation and so i i bring this up because i think that voter suppression has kind of gotten lost in the conversation in the 2016 election and and mostly because it's not even about relitigating the 2016 election it's about understanding what's going to happen in 2018 and 2020 if people don't sort of put the pressure on our our congressional representatives and state representatives to rid the states of these like heinously uh, malevolent voter suppression laws that are keeping people from the polls. And I'm glad you brought this up, Clint, because it is, you know, we talk a lot about voter suppression laws and voter ID laws. It's important to ground that in a context, uh, a historical context, that these are actually building on voter suppression laws that already exist and compounding their effect. And so, you know, it starts with, you know, the Electoral College, for example, which vastly uh, overstates and expands on the power of folks who are in rural areas, folks who are tend to be older, uh, more likely to be white, um, and vastly uh, reduces the political power of people of color, people in cities, uh, people in more populous states. Uh, And so, you know, you see this in the structure of the Senate as well. I mean, this is in the Constitution, right? This is the founding document of the country um, where the Senate, the structure of the Senate uh, disproportionately advantages uh, groups that are, you know, older, whiter, uh, more rural uh, and then you you build on that. You look at the next level uh, and you look at disenfranchisement laws, right? Florida, we talk about a lot, uh, you know, about 40% of black men in Florida can't vote because of a law uh, passed in 1868, right? So, you know, that's 29 electoral votes that, you know, Trump would probably not have won Florida. Uh, that's 29 votes. Uh, and George W. Bush probably wouldn't have won Florida. And that's another presidency. 
Um, and then you add on that this new wave of voter ID laws, voter suppression laws. So on average, black people, uh, about 25% of black people in this country do not have a uh, photo ID that would be seen as valid uh, by these sort of strict photo ID states uh, versus only 8% of white people, right? And so now you have almost every battleground state Right, so you have the electoral college that it, that focuses things in on particular states, and now within those particular states, you're seeing politicians pass laws that further dilute the political power of people of color. So you're seeing this in Wisconsin, which flipped the election there, right? So again, Wisconsin, Florida, between those two, that's the election in 2016. Um, but also Ohio, recent voter ID law, and they've they've started to purge voters from the rolls. Iowa recently passed a voter ID law. Virginia has a voter ID law. New Hampshire has a voter ID law. These are all battleground states. So there's layer upon layer of uh, anti-democratic legislation uh, building on one another that actually makes it much harder uh, for people to actually be heard and for their political power uh, to manifest in uh, political representation. Uh, And so you know, what does that look like? That looks like a system where, you know, the people in power, the political party that's in power does not represent the majority of people. It's not a democratic system. Uh, and even more so when you look at gerrymandering, for example, you know, according to estimates, it will take a 10 point, 10 points more of a democratic vote uh, for the House in 2018 for Democrats to actually win the House in 2018. So, you know, we could get 59% for Democrats and 41% for Republicans, and most likely Republicans would still win the House. So you can't tell me that that system that I just described is democratic in any way, shape, or form. And so the question is, how do we actually make sure that we can dismantle those structures and systems? And can we actually even dismantle them in the context of that electoral process that has been created that itself is uh, makes it so much harder to dismantle uh, what has been going on. So that's sort of big picture. I don't know how we move forward on on that other than to say that we have to make what votes we do have count uh, and show up when we can, but it is definitely not a fair system. It's definitely not democratic. And one of the things about voting rights is that people, it, voter suppression becomes this like boogeyman. It's like, oh, voter suppression. Like, I don't know what that looks like. And I'm reminded that it is happening every day. So we think about in 2013, North Carolina enacted one of the most restrictive voting laws in the country. It included like photo ID to cast a ballot. It cut early voting. It eliminated same day voter registration and out of precinct voting and pre-registration for high school students. They were taken to court in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals Uh, struck down the law for a quote. This is a quote from the opinion. African-Americans for targeting, quote, African-Americans with almost surgical precision because the legislature had actually requested data on the methods that black people were more likely to use. And then they wrote the law to specifically curtail those things. So this is this is happening today. And I bring that up because it was overturned by the courts. They North Carolina tried to appeal to the Supreme Court and was rejected. But why does that case still matter? Is that that guy, the guy who actually defended North Carolina in that, he is uh, set to become a federal judge under Trump. So we have so much to worry about, not only making sure that we pass progressive laws that give everybody the right to vote and everybody equal access to vote, but also that we don't have Trump stack the courts with people who just who simply don't believe that a set of society should have the power to vote. And that has to be a part of this conversation, too. And I just want to add two things. I think so. One is that while there is like a very direct uh, impact that voter suppression has, like for so for example, the woman I described in Ari Berman's story from Mother Jones, 
she showed up to the polls and was not allowed to vote because she didn't have the driver's license. So that is a very direct and clear example of voter suppression. But part of what people also need to understand is that part of the impact and and the goal of voter suppression is not singularly to prevent those who show up at the polls from being able to vote, but it is the to prevent people from even wanting to get up and go to the polls, right? Part of the way that suppression operates is that it is meant to discourage people from even making the effort to go vote because they believe that their efforts will be in vain, right? And so if you have all of these um, all of these people who keep coming back and saying, oh, well, I went to my polling place and I wasn't allowed to to vote. Um, and if those are the stories that you keep hearing in your community, then what what incentive do you have to to take off work, to pick your kids up late, to not be able to make a meal that evening or whatever it is that you're giving up in order to go to the polling place if you're not going to have the opportunity to have your vote counted in the first place? So that's that's important for folks to know is the sort of indirect sort of psychological warfare that that voter suppression has. And then secondly, I know people often leave these stories and they're like, man, I feel really helpless. What can I do? Well, the ACLU uh, nationally is doing some really important work in combating a lot of these laws, both legally, but also like in an on the ground organizing and grassroots sort of way. Uh, and they are uh, have volunteers and different folks who are working, going into community spaces and ensuring that they try to provide the driver's license or the documentation needed for folks who will ultimately be voting in 2018, 2020 moving forward. Uh, and so if you're interested in helping, I would suggest that you reach out to your local ACLU chapter and and ask how you can get involved. Because there are, I don't want people to leave this saying like, oh, well, you know, Paul Ryan's not going to do anything, so I can't do anything. But there are real we can work within the system we have while we work to change the larger system. Um, and and I, I would really encourage folks to to reach out to their local ACLU chapters to see how they can be of assistance. You know, Clint, you bring up such a critically important point that we absolutely cannot miss. Elections have always been rigged against Black people in this country. This is not the first time that our communities have experienced election hacking. Overall, election hacking is something that we should absolutely be paying attention to. But voter suppression has been known in black communities and experienced in black communities since before we actually won the franchise, since before we actually won the right to vote. When you think about everything from the kind of voter suppression that you're talking about with voter ID laws to the closing of polling places occurring disproportionately in black and brown communities, all the way to the kind of voter disenfranchisement that we talk about all the time because mass incarceration disproportionately affects black and brown people. And those folks, many of them, when they return to society, cannot actually engage in their right to vote. And so uh, if we're honest about it, if we look throughout history, elections have always been hacked for black people. They've always been rigged against black people. And what's even more important about this story is that it pushes people beyond the idea that voter suppression is only a problem in the American South. We talk about the Shelby County case. We talk about Florida and voter disenfranchisement there. We talk about the important victory coming out of North Carolina when the Supreme Court refused to overturn a ruling by a lower court that struck down one of the most strict voter ID laws in the entire country. But this is Wisconsin that we're talking about. And we see lots of this voter suppression happening 
above the former Mason-Dixon line. Um, and this is an issue that we have to pay attention to in every single place where marginalized people live. It's, it's uh, you know, we often discuss voting as just one tool in our toolbox, and it is, but it's certainly a critical one uh, when you think about all of the different ways up the ballot and down the ballot that we are affected by these electoral decisions. And so this con- this continual conversation that we have on this podcast and in other spaces about voter disenfranchisement and voter suppression is one that we need to have uh, that looks at all of the ways in which black and brown folks are disenfranchised, not just in the South, but certainly in the North as well. For those of you who want to take action on issues of voter suppression, in addition to the ones that have already been discussed, I recently learned about a state rep named Alicia Reese in Ohio, who for the last several years has been proposing a voter bill of rights so that it would enshrine the right to vote in the Ohio state constitution. They're in need of about 300,000 signatures. They're about a third of the way there. They unfortunately have not been getting funding and backing from a lot of the larger national organizations that we've been talking about. But if you live in Ohio, if you've got people in Ohio, or even if you just want to spread the message, that's something that you should definitely get. Give a look. So, you know, Rose McGowan started this important conversation across the country about sexual assault in the media. And uh, we've seen, what, two, three weeks of, of people telling their stories about what happened. And we, we've seen it lead to repercussions that is swiftly changing uh, who is in Hollywood, who has to who can hold power and who who can't. And that is really important. And the most recent revelation is about Kevin Spacey. So there was an actor who came out and said that um, Kevin Spacey years ago uh, hit on him when he was 14 years old and, and was sexually suggestive to him in a way that was aggressive. And Kevin Spacey responded by essentially saying that he was drunk that night, doesn't remember anything that happened. He remembers being drunk, but doesn't remember, you know, anything that this, this actor said. Um, and then he comes out and he's like, I live life as a gay man. And it, what was so frustrating about it is that he tries to use his coming out story as a way to deflect from the predatory nature of the the allegations and the accusations it, to somehow suggest that like gay people are just pedophiles. And, and that was really disturbing because the gay community has worked for so long to dispel this idea that gay people are just pedophiles. And that is not true. It's never been true. And he just, he in one swift moment just fed that narrative so much energy and so much fire. So what you see on social media is homophobia just coming out in every way possible because Kevin Spacey used this moment not to atone for what he had done, to acknowledge it, but to use his coming out as a way to completely deflect from it. Yeah, like many, I was incredibly disappointed with uh, the statement, and and again, it's just it's just dangerous, you know. I, I I don't think that people fully grasp the the extent to which a moment like this and a and a statement like this from from such a powerful person uh, can feed that false uh, that false conflation between uh, the sort of like hypersexualized. Uh, queer man who who preys on on young children, which is which is simply false, but but has been fed, as you said, Ray, so much so much energy from this statement, and and again, this is something that that's dangerous because when when politicians on a local, state, and federal level are considering legislation, when we're having conversations about um, 
whether or not trans folks can serve in the military, when we're having a conversation about what bathrooms people should use, when we're having a conversation about whether people should be able to um, have due process in terms of getting, whether if they're fired from their job um, and they suspect it's because of their sexual orientation. I mean, the myriad of things that, that the LGBTQ community are still experiencing with regard to discrimination and oppression in this country are set back in in very real ways, in a sort of cultural way, uh, because of of irresponsible statements like these. And so I hope that we can disentangle uh, dangerous, irresponsible, and violent behavior um, that one sees in in those who who prey on young children from people who who simply want to love the people they love and and live as they will. Um, and and that we we sort of check and and push back against any of these conflated uh, and false notions of that try to that try to put those two things together as if they are um, as if they're one. And and I hope that we can just continue just continue to push back on that. So this is a pretty sensitive subject for me, as I have unfortunately, like many people out there, experienced sexual harassment uh, in the workplace. Uh, and seen absolutely nothing be done about it. Um, in fact, all of this has made some of those experiences come screaming back to me, and I'm trying to decide right now what I want to do about it. Uh, I think it's really important to note that it was actually a woman named Tarana Burke who created the Me Too hashtag about 10 years ago that Alyssa Milana revived in light of what happened to Rose McGowan and so many other people. Um, and I'm thankful to all of them for ensuring that this is a conversation that we cannot ignore. Um, I'm also really hopeful that we continue to pay attention to predators of all kinds, even when their victims are not um, highly visible, mostly white women. Um, predators of all kind, irrespective of who their victims are, need to be held accountable for their actions. And more importantly, we have to end this culture of permissiveness because that is exactly why rape culture exists. The idea that sexual harassment is just something that we have to deal with in the workplace, that we just have to let roll off our backs and allow it to toughen us up is something that is pervasive across multiple industries. Um, and we're not going to stop that culture until we actually hold people accountable for their actions. This um, situation with Kevin Spacey, though, made me think of a tweet that I saw from a really phenomenal trans activist, Raquel Willis. She said, this whole Kevin Spacey situation reminds me that queerness is still more shocking than sexual violence to far too many people. So essentially, Kevin Spacey banked on the idea that coming out as gay would be more of a story than what he was actually being accused of um, in terms of sexual violence against a minor. Um, and that really struck me because it does seem that his calculation, unfortunately, was right. I'm glad to see that lots of people are not letting him off the hook uh, because living your life as an LGBTQIA person uh, who is a consenting adult and is engaged with other consenting adults is not the same whatsoever as engaging with a minor um, or making advances toward a minor. Uh, and for so long, LGBTQIA people have had to fight the stereotype that they are after other people's children. And so I think it's really shameful that he would perpetuate that stereotype in an effort to save himself. And, you know, everybody's losing their job for sexual assault and harassment except for the president of the United States. So, you know, he needs some accountability in these moments in a way that he's wholly not getting. 
That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, And we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. And now my conversation with Terrell McSweeney, one of two uh, sitting commissioners on the Federal Trade Commission. Terrell McSweeney, thank you for joining us today on Party of the People. Thanks so much for having me. I'm psyched to be on. Now, you are a commissioner at the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, and you've uh, been there since 2014. You were at the DOJ before, and uh, you went to Harvard undergrad and Georgetown Law. Can we start with how you got to the FTC? Sure, absolutely. Well, um I started off 
after law school working in the U.S. Senate uh, for then-Senator Joe Biden, and I was lucky enough to join the Obama campaign and uh, then go on with uh, President Obama and Vice President Biden to the White House for the first four years of the administration. And so uh, after working in the White House on domestic policy, I uh, took a turn working over at DOJ in the antitrust division and then there was an opening at the Federal Trade Commission, and I was lucky enough to get nominated by the president. And the Federal Trade Commission does a lot of antitrust work, but also consumer protection. Can we talk about, like, what is the FTC in general? Like, what does the FTC sure. do? Is, does it do trade? Like, what, how many people are in the FTC? So it's a completely funny thing. So the Federal Trade Commission does not do anything associated with trade policy at all, which seems odd because that's in our name. But in fact, uh, we're a 103-year-old independent commission that was actually founded by Woodrow Wilson. And what we do is protect consumers from unfair, deceptive acts and practices and unfair competition in the marketplace. We're supposed to be a five-member commission made up of not more than three people from one party, so a bipartisan commission. But right now we're a little bit shorthanded. There's just a couple commissioners remaining. Uh, Me, I'm a Democratic commissioner, and then my colleague, who's the acting chairman, Maureen Olhausen, who's a Republican commissioner. So what happens when there are only two of you? Well, we have to agree. (laughs) (laughs) In order to do anything, we have to agree is basically what happens. But yeah, we can still function as long as we agree to, to vote on something. So really what our day job is, a lot of it is bringing lawsuits uh, against either companies or sometimes individuals who are con artists for things that are harming consumers in the marketplace. So uh, on any given week, we probably um, have three or four cases that we're authorizing being brought And a lot of them have to do with some pretty terrible fraudulent practices that are happening out there in the marketplace all the time. Uh, Bad debt collection practices. We just announced recently a sweep um, that we called Game of Loans. It's all about student debt relief uh, scams that are in the marketplace right now. So unfortunately, we're kept pretty busy all the time by a bunch of frauds and scams. But we also do this other mission where we Uh, have antitrust where we protect competition. And we also do a lot on privacy and data security. Now, when you say bring lawsuits against companies, does that mean that you and the other commissioner right now, you have to agree to bring those lawsuits against companies? Yes. So if we both agree, since there's only two of us, uh, then we vote and then, then we can bring a lawsuit. But if we disagree, then that would be a tie vote and nothing would happen. So sometimes we disagree. For example, recently I disagreed on a decision about whether to move forward with blocking Walgreens' acquisition of most of Rite Aid. We couldn't agree on that, so that moved forward, but, uh, you know, I thought it shouldn't. How did it move forward if you didn't agree with it, though? Because, you know, one one commission, if uh, two people don't agree, then, <laughs> then the, the default is, is nothing happens. Oh, so you did, you you were trying to stop it. I was trying to stop it, but I didn't have the support to stop it, if that makes sense. Why were you trying to stop it? Oh, I was worried that in America, we really only have 
uh, now, because of this deal, two major retail pharmacy chains, CVS and Walgreens, and before we had CVS, Walgreens, and Rite Aid. And there's some competition occurring because of that that results in people having better prices for pharmaceutical drugs. And I'm worried that when we allow that kind of concentration in retail pharmacies, for example, and allowing there to be only two major chains, we, we lose out. And what do you say to people, though, who push and say, like, well, if they can afford it, if they can afford to buy the other company, then they should be able to do it. And that that's what America is. And that's what the market should be. Like, why does that not sway you? Well, because markets are great and I'm incredibly pro-market. But the reason markets are great for consumers and for innovation is because competition is occurring in them. And the competition very often takes the form of better prices for people in order to attract their business. So I'm a big believer in our antitrust laws being kind of an antitrust agencies being kind of the referees that help preserve the competition in the marketplace. And when we don't see a lot of competition happening in markets, we do tend to see higher prices for consumers, maybe less options, maybe abusive practices. And I think a lot of us have experiences even in our daily lives, right? Think about, um, on the one hand, whether or not you like your current cable provider. And then on the other hand, maybe the benefit that we get from four big wireless carriers all competing. We now have access to unlimited data plans, for example, a thing that we might not have if there were only two major carriers or three major carriers competing. Are there any other mergers uh, on the table that we, the, the American public should be paying attention to? Well, actually, there are always rumors of big mergers. There's one right now involving potential merger between Sprint and T-Mobile. That's the kind of thing I would pay a lot of attention to. It, it, it's just a rumor, though. Um, and uh, at any given time, you know, the, there can be some, some major combinations. People generally pay attention to mergers between airlines. Um, but there can be also mergers that affect the price of goods uh, that we are using, but may not be completely obvious to consumers. So one example of that is we blocked at the FTC a merger between U.S. Foods and Cisco, which are the people who provide, you've probably seen their trucks, they provide food distribution to restaurants and to anybody basically providing food service. Well, if their prices had gone up, then the prices that you pay for the food might have gone up. Now, another thing that I wanted to talk to you about, because I think this is also your wheelhouse, is Equifax. Yes. The recent breach. Now, I've seen it in the news. I don't know. I'm not an expert on this. And, you know, hoping I know that you know more than I do. (laughs) What happened with Equifax? And like, what did the FTC do about it? What can be done about it? What should the American public be thinking about with regard to Equifax? Okay, so the Federal Trade Commission in addition to protecting consumers from frauds and scams and protecting competition, does a lot of work around protecting consumer data security. And we also provide services that are free of charge to people who have experienced identity theft or are experiencing it. In that capacity, right now, we have confirmed that we are investigating the Equifax data breach. So because we're investigating it, I can't get into a lot of specifics about what happened, but I'm happy to talk to you about what what we should be doing 
I think, around this kind of issue and um, to answer any questions that people have about whether they're concerned if their information was exposed. So, um, for example, we have a lot of information available on our website, recommendations about what to do if you're concerned. The the first stop, I think, is always um, to go to ftc.gov for reliable information. And from there, we would advise you to check your credit reports, which you can do for free on annualcreditreport.com, and consider placing credit freeze on your files if you're concerned. Now, I, I do want to just really reiterate that there are a lot of companies that try to take advantage of people's fear in this kind of situation, and they try to sell a lot of services that you probably don't need and that may not help you anyway. And so it's important, I think, also to be a good advocate for yourself and to take your own proactive steps and watch out for things that promise to secure your identity or provide a foolproof system because those promises are very often untrue. Now, on the on the FTC website, it, it says that the Equifax data breach uh, was 143 million consumers whose sensitive personal data was exposed. Um, so that is on the website. Now, you just talked about that people can get free credit checks, though there are three big private credit check agencies. Like, why would what, why, what's the why would somebody go to a private one if they can just get it for free somewhere? Well, uh, you know. It- we're constantly in the FTC kind of battling against people who try to sell services that you can actually access for free. And those are mostly scams. So we see this a lot, by the way, in um, fake scams that try to sell you credit repair. Um, We see it a lot in uh, services that try to sell you student debt relief. We see it in tax relief companies. And a lot of these companies are trying to sell you services that you can essentially access for free. And, and unfortunately, they're, they're taking advantage. So one of the things I like to remind people is don't pay upfront fees for any of these services. Really try to think about whether what you're seeing in the marketplace is a real thing that will provide you benefit. And when in doubt, check on the FTC website for, for information because you're right. You don't need to pay to access your credit report. You can do that for free by going to annualcreditreport.com. I had no clue. One of the three companies is how I check my credit report. I didn't know. Is there like a law that makes it free? Like, it, is it free just because it's yeah, like a service? There's the a FTC law that makes it like free. You, each, each one of the big uh, credit reporting agencies is obligated to provide that uh, you access each year for to your free credit report. One of the things I like to do is I don't necessarily check all three of them at once. I sometimes check one and then wait a few months and then check at another service so that I'm sort of spreading out when I'm checking my free annual credit reports. But then they're also... Oh, they all have to give you one. They all have to give yeah, you one a year. They all have to give you one. Oh, wow. And then in certain situations, such as in situations of breach, they have to also give you access uh, to your credit report for free as well. There we go. I, I didn't know about that at all. Now, I, I know another thing that the FTC recently did was, um, I think it was called Operation Game of Loans. Yes, exactly. Which is a great name, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Well, did you name that? 
I did not. Um, we actually have terrific staff at the FTC that are working on these issues all the time. And, you know, these are services, I've experienced them because I have student loans and I bet a lot of people have that, that contact you and try to promise debt relief for your student loans. A lot of these are fake, they are scams, and they're charging upfront fees for services that they can't even deliver on. So, so big red flag for us, and, and we are um, working on trying to go after the fraudulent services in this space. But if I could just reiterate it, we, we really think the most important thing here is not to pay upfront, upfront fees for any of these services. So whether it's a company contacting you promising to fix your student debt or offering you a credit repair service or offering you tax relief, do not pay upfront fees because very often those that's a good indication of a fraudulent service. Now, what was the outcome of Game of Loans? Like, What, what was the corrective action that the FTC took? So for us, uh, we are actively prosecuting uh, the companies that are fraudulent companies in this space. Uh, we we do sweeps, we call them. So we're primarily an enforcement agency, which means we are looking at either complaints we're getting from consumers or from trends we're seeing in the marketplace. And if we see something that we think is deceptive or unfair, especially if we're seeing it in, in a widespread way, then we will target that practice. And that's what the game of loan sweep is for us. It's targeting uh, a number of student debt relief companies that, that really are fraudulent. If one of those businesses calls me and is trying to get me to sign up, I can go to the FTC website to see if it's a real business or not. Or like, what would I do? How would I sift through the, the real from the fake? Well, the first thing you would do is not pay an upfront fee because you've been talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> and the second thing you would do, I think, is maybe collect the information and hang up the phone. Always good advice for any solicitations you're getting, by the way, no matter what form you're getting them from, uh, or, or whether it's over the phone or in the mail. And then do a little due diligence. You could either see, uh, you, you could probably do a search and find out more about the company. If you're concerned about the company and you identify it as offering a fake offer or is taking advantage of you in some way, or if you have already been paying one of these companies and you believe that they are defrauding you, then you should absolutely complain to the FTC because we have uh, a system where we look at those complaints and we use those complaints to bring cases against companies. And we can actually get consumers their money back as well. Uh, so sometimes, especially if, if we are able to get to it quickly enough, we can get consumers redress, which is uh, literally a check in the mail. And how can people reach the FTC? Well, the best way is on our website, which is ftc.gov. And that is the way that we uh, generally receive our complaints. Um, and it's, it's pretty easy. It takes a few minutes, but it's well worth it because um, it really helps us make sure that we are on top of the kinds of complaints and, and problems that are out there. So if you go to www.ftc.gov, right on the front page, it says file a consumer complaint and you can go straight there and it, it kind of walks you through. 
But, you know, there are other organizations that we also work with. State attorney generals uh, are very important partners for us and also better business bureaus as well. I remember seeing those commercials about the better business bureau when I was a kid, but I don't think I ever knew what a better business bureau does. What do they do? Well, it's sort of like a free Angie's List or review platform, right? Um, So Better Business Bureau is essentially an organization that's trying to understand and take uh, in complaints from consumers about businesses, big and small, and uh, and help businesses be good, responsible uh, businesses in the marketplace. So, So they're good partners for us because if a company is fraudulent or if a company promises to do something and they don't do it or they don't provide a refund, then sometimes the Better Business Bureau has received those complaints and they can uh, send those to us as well. And and they're helpful partners in uh, their markets because they, they tend to be in their own more local communities. One of the other things I want to talk to you about was big data is that I know that the, the FTC manages the data that companies and the government use to understand our behavior as consumers and citizens. But what does that actually look like? I know that I I think that that is a part of your charge, but what does that mean in practice? Well, all right. So we are a consumer protection agency, but because everybody is increasingly moving online and we're in this like hyper-connected world all the time, One of the things the FTC has also become is an agency that protects consumers' privacy and their data security, which is why we look at things like the Equifax data breach, for example, or uh, are bringing cases about consumers' privacy as well. And so in that context, we've been looking a lot at the consequences of, of data and connectivity and trying to understand how consumers are faring out there. You know, and it's an area that honestly I'm very concerned about. A lot of people don't know this, but in the United States, we don't really have a comprehensive privacy or security uh, legislation that protects us. So, for example, our rights around when we have information, if our information is breached through uh, insecure bad practice, uh, is depends on what state you live in. The remedies available to you may depend on what state you live in. And we don't have any kind of comprehensive privacy right. We also don't have any comprehensive right to our data we don't have control over our data once we agree to give it away. And a lot of the apps and services that we're using are monetizing our data, which means they're sharing it with third parties. So you've probably heard this expression. Sometimes you hear it, and it's a pretty good explanation of how, how this is working, which is uh, if, you, um, if you're using something for free, then you are the product, right? So what that means is when you're on a social network or you're using an app, if you haven't been mindful of what you're doing, you may be sharing a lot of personal information about you, not just with the company that is running the service that you're using, but with any other company that that company is selling your information to. So that's big data for you. (laughs) And the problem is, uh, you know, one of the uses that we experience in our daily lives a lot is advertising. And that's kind of the shoes that follow you around the internet once you've searched for them or something like that. It's sort of a joke. Sometimes we know, I mean, we know it's happening and it's not, it's not terrible and advertising supports, you know, a lot of websites and content and things that we like to access. 
But what's happening is because uh, the analytics around our, our data and the technology around it are getting more and more powerful, we're having uses of our data that we may not anticipate in the same way which means it's now being used to maybe decide what price to offer you or what opportunity to offer you or whether you may be considered for a job or not. And so some of these uses, I think, are potentially more problematic. And I'm hoping we can have a bigger conversation about what we expect from companies that are using our data. What does the FTC do with regard to that, though? Like, if somebody tells you that the data is being used incorrectly, would you potentially file a lawsuit, or is that another agency? Well, we have some tools that we have been trying to use. So, for example, uh, if a company tells you that they are not going to collect your geolocation, but they do that anyway, then we can say they deceived you, and we can bring a case. But if a company says, we're going to collect your geolocation and you click, I agree, then we're pretty much done at that point. And and that's fine. There's plenty of uses for your geolocation, such as if you're using a mapping app, you probably want it to use your location, right? So there's lots of uses that, that are perfectly legitimate that we don't want to discourage. What we've been trying to get more information about and provide more information to consumers about are the, are the times that they may not anticipate their sensitive information is being used that way. So, for example, we had a case recently where um, smart televisions were collecting um, millisecond by millisecond viewing information about every single thing that was on the screen, no matter where it was played from. So your DVR player, your DVD player, your game console, it was collecting everything you were watching and then uh, feeding that back for marketing purposes. That's incredibly valuable information. But you may wow. not have anticipated as a consumer that your television was going to be doing that. Um, so we, we try to look at practices when we feel like the consumers don't have enough information about how, in order to anticipate how their information was being, is going to be used to uh, make a, a, a choice. But our framework is really based on on a notice and choice framework. And some of the conversation that we've been having is whether we need stronger protections because now there are a lot of uses for our information that really were hard to anticipate as consumers maybe when we when we shared it in the first place. Now, I wanted to ask you too, how does the FTC change at all when the administration changes? This wasn't the president that appointed you. Has the work changed at all now that Trump is in the White House? Well, because there's just two of us, um, and we don't really have a new ma- majority formed by the new administration yet. The work hasn't changed that much, but uh, nominations were actually just announced today. So I, I do expect that the new majority at the FTC could change things. Some of the questions that I'm going to have for them, of course, are what are they going to do about consumer data rights? What are they going to do about consumer privacy and data security? What are they going to do about really a high level of concentration in the marketplace and uh, firms with a lot of power that might be behaving anti-competitively? And and I think we'll have to see. It's a little bit soon yet to know what will happen at this agency. You know, in this moment, people feel like the world's ending, that 
they're worried about sort of what comes next and, and people are losing hope. What do you say to those people? Well, I've been working on these issues for a long time. And so I guess when I'm feeling frustrated and I get it because this is a really difficult environment and there are so many days where I wake up and something is happening and I cannot even believe it, right? I mean, so I I get the frustration level. I do try to think about the progress that we've already made on issues that I care about. And then uh, I try to remember that hope is inherently an active state of engagement. So if you're hopeless, then you're kind of shutting down and feeling like things are impossible and that can result in apathy. And so I just try to re-engage and think about the actions that I feel are important and kind of reactivate uh, myself when I'm feeling really, really frustrated. But I get it. It's a hard environment for for that because it has been, it's been a super tough time. But I guess... Um, the alternative to, uh, I mean, if you're not going to try to be hopeful, then I don't know. Hopelessness feels like giving up, which feels like the wrong, the wrong choice in the face of of all of all that we're confronting as a country right now. And when I think about it too, I I also think about all of the really amazing action that is happening out there all over the country and and how forceful and powerful it is. So even if you don't agree with what the institutions of the government are doing right now, you can see all of the action people are taking in their own communities to make changes. And, and that, it's hard not to be hopeful about that. And, I, and it's hard not to feel hopeful about the amount of energy around um, fighting for progressive causes that I feel like there is actually out there right now. So um, it's a tough time, but I try to focus on uh, on the positive things. And when that doesn't work, I find a little outrage and try to have that focus my energy. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Now, is there, a piece of, um, is there a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stayed with you? Yeah, it is. It's actually, it's it's a piece of advice that my dad gave to me, but I think he got it from like Harry Truman or someone else, but I hear it in my dad's voice. So I'm not attributing it properly, but it's essentially like you can accomplish a lot if you don't care who gets the credit. And, and that was advice my dad gave to me uh, kind of probably when I was in high school and I was a little unwilling to, to hear it, but um, but he's given it to me consistently. And the longer I've stayed with it, the more true I, I found it to be. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Party of the People. I consider you a friend of the pod. And as uh, issues that impact the FTC come up, we'd love to have you back. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And I really appreciate the chance to talk about some of these issues. I hope everybody out there starts being an active consumer. And there is a lot uh, that that we can be doing as consumers to make sure that we are not being taken advantage of. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Here's my conversation with Melvin Carter, candidate to be the next mayor of St. Paul, Minnesota. Melvin, thanks so much for joining us today. Excited to talk to you on Pot of the People. Oh, I appreciate you guys having me on. Now, you are running for mayor. Yes, sir. Where? I'm running for mayor of St. Paul, Minnesota. It's the capital city of this great state, uh, and I'm excited. We're closer than any person of color ever has been to the mayor's office here. I love it. And I used to live in Minneapolis. Uh, I did not spend much time in St. Paul, though, but excited to talk to you more about why you're running. Why are you running to be the next mayor of St. Paul? I'm running to be mayor of St. Paul, this city that my family has been in for over 100 years, uh, since my great-grandparents fled the racial violence of the Deep South uh, in hopes of a better life here. You know, I've been thinking a lot about them lately. You know, I, I wonder if there's any way they could imagine that their great-grandson would be in the position that I'm in right now to potentially be the next mayor of this city. It says a lot about them and the sacrifices they made, but it also says a lot about our, our, our city and our communities and the opportunities that it afforded my family. You know, I grew up in the rec centers, the schools and the libraries here, uh, and I left to go to college in Florida, at Florida A&M University. Uh, and when I graduated, I remember just feeling like I owed a real debt of gratitude to, back to this city. My, my parents are both public servants. My mom uh, was a teacher. My father was a police officer for 28 years here, uh, and they just taught us that you serve community and you help just kind of make community better. All that to say, I live in a city where a child's life outcomes uh, for too many of our children can be better predicted uh, by her race, her zip code, and her parents' education than by how hard she works and how smart she is. And that's just not something that I'm able to live with. So we're running to build a city that works for all of us starting with public schools that serve all of our kids, uh, a thriving local economy with room for everyone that starts with raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, uh, and investments in affordable housing in a city where the rent is rising and our population is growing. We have work to do to make sure that people aren't displaced and forced out of our city. The final thing that I talk a lot to folks about is the need for city services that serve all of our residents. I, as a young African-American man who grew up here, have had a lot of occasions to feel like somebody else is getting protected and served while I'm getting policed. So we're committed to providing top quality public services 
uh, to every person in every part of our city. Now, you're not new to politics. You run the city council, right? Yeah, I was vice president of the St. Paul City Council up until 2013. And I spent the last four years as an education uh, advisor to Governor Mark Dayton. And how did those experiences, if at all, help you either think about running for mayor or how do you think that they will help you if you become the next mayor? Those experiences have given me uh, a, a deep perspective of City Hall and a deep perspective of government from City Hall to the Capitol. Uh, they've also given me a whole lot of incredible mentors to draw from uh, as we navigate what's oftentimes just challenging decisions uh, and difficult moments throughout this campaign. For me, the, the, the experiences that I think qualify me most are just the experiences of having grown up in this community, knowing what it feels like to be pulled over for driving while black, knowing what it feels like to live on a block that's devastated by foreclosures. And I'm excited to be able to bring a perspective to City Hall that's never sat in the mayor's office. Now, what would you say if you had to name like the top three issues facing St. Paul, what would they be? And why do you think St. Paul matters in the in the greater landscape of Minnesota or in the region? You know, we, we here in St. Paul have spent maybe an inordinate uh, amount of time in the national spotlight. Uh, the world watched St. Paul as we waited just this summer uh, for the verdict in the Philando Castile case. Uh, and, 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 and we've, you know, been at the center of a lot of the core conversations about who we're going to be as a community and who we're going to be as a country. That's important in the, in the context of the national dialogue that we're having right now. It's important in the context of an international community that we have here. I know you've seen it in Minneapolis from our historic African-American communities, like the one that raised me uh, to our immigrant communities, uh, to everyone else in our community. It's really critical. So we're really focused a lot, like I said, on raising the minimum wage and everything that we can do to make community life easier and more promising for everybody in our community. At the core, though, this is really about, uh, as we talk about building a city that works for everyone, it's talking about addressing our disparities head on. We too often, DeRay, talk about disparities as though they're sort of a force of nature or an act of God that cannot be prevented. They can only be kind of mitigated a little bit. We know that our disparities are the result of decades and generations of public policy and resource decisions uh, that have built them and that have made them grow over time. We have to dismantle that and do the reverse. Now, what do you say to the people who, who feel like the world's ending? can't do anything that like, it just doesn't matter right now. Right. That like that they individually can't make a difference that there's just too much up against them. What do you say to those people? One, I understand the sentiment. There is a whole lot going on in the country and there's a whole lot going on all over the world right now. And it feels like there's just too much. What I say a lot of times is, and what I really believe in my heart is when we turn on CNN or when we turn on C-SPAN and we see this world of things going wrong that we wish was different, what we can do and what we have to do is look in the circle right around us and impact what's happening closest to us. That's why in the context of a presidency that seems hostile to everything that I love, that seems to be trying to convince me that my neighbors, that my coworkers, that even my family members are what's wrong in America – my goal is to say on the most local level, what we do is care for each other. 
when we plow the snow after a blizzard, when we fill our potholes, when we send our, our emergency responders to help people, we're caring for people at the most local level. And that is what we can do in the context of everything going on in the world. Now, we talk about criminal justice a lot on the pod, and I've had Mayor Betsy Hodges on the pod. And obviously, as, as you note, uh, Minnesota has been in the news because of Jamar Clark and Justin Diamond and, and Philando Castile. So as mayor, how would you make sure that the city was safe in a way that didn't recreate the same disparities around criminal justice that we know exist already? Yeah, that's that's a critical, important question, because we have to have safe communities. I think we've bought into sort of a false narrative about public safety over the last generation. And that is essentially if we hire more officers and build more jail cells, that our community will be safer. So this starts with understanding that public safety isn't just about cops and it's not even just about policing. It's about just redefining at the core what it means to be safe in our community. When people feel more and not less safe uh, with the presence of police, we know we're a long way from real safety. What real safety means to me is this. When young people are hopeful about their future, when young people know they can get a summer job and are excited about their after school program, then you don't have those same public safety issues. So it all starts with healthy communities and stable families and making the core investments on the front end so that you're not constantly doing the emergency response on the tail end. That's where it has to start. Melvin, recently there seemed to be some tension between the police union in St. Paul and your campaign where they released information that that wasn't true. Can you help provide more context about what happened and and where it is today? Yeah, absolutely. Our house was broken into this summer uh, and, you know, the, the, the burglars came in and took some things that were really prized possessions to my family, uh, including two firearms that used to belong to my dad from when he was serving as a St. Paul police officer. Uh, just uh, last week, the police federation, uh, working along with, with some other special interests in our city, uh, released uh, actually some confidential information uh, to try to attack my family and me as though we were the suspects. Uh, because we are the victims of a crime. And that's something that uh, was just really unfortunate in our city last week. Their contention was that you know they, they listed how many shots have been fired in St. Paul since my house was broken into and tried to pretend that uh, essentially all the violent crime in the city is my fault because my house had gotten broken into. I got a letter from the president of the Police Federation last week uh, articulating a set of questions that they had for me as though they were conducting a shadow investigation. Uh, And uh, a lot of folks called them out, the local media, a lot of our local elected officials, you know, and people all over social media called them out. And and they gave me uh, an apology, but then the following day, uh, sent out a piece of mail to all over the city uh, that really doubled down on what the letter had said in the first place. And so our our governor has spoken up. Uh, our U.S. Senator Al Franken has spoken up. Our mayor of our city, even our police chief has spoken up uh, to say that that's just not the kind of city we want to be. I want to read uh, what the mailer said. It says, as gun violence rages across St. Paul, Melvin Carter has shown zero interest in public safety. Had Carter called the police immediately upon learning of his home being burglarized recently, his two guns would likely not be on the streets today. And then they've circled this part. This is over 100 shots have been fired since August 15th when Melvin Carter's guns went missing. 
it is sort of wild that they seem to be making a direct relationship between your, you being the victim of a crime and crime happening in the city. What do you think the motivation behind that was? Uh, I, I think that's the important question. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time over this past week reminding people that as shameful as what happened last week is, uh, it's not a new issue. It's one we've been talking about for a long time. And it's not a personal feud between me and the president of the police federation. There are systemic issues that we have to address uh, around the way police and community members interact. Uh, and that's and, and the presumption of guilt that people of color all over this city, uh, all over this country face, you know. And so, you know, I think the, the underlying problem is that we have been talking about public safety. We've been talking about it from a realm of, you know, connecting with people by saying public safety isn't about flooding our neighborhoods with police, but it's about flooding our neighborhoods with opportunity. We've wrapped this campaign around a community-first policing plan that says we have to reform use of force in our city. We need stronger civilian oversight, uh, and we need to create mental health response teams so that we are just giving our officers what they need to connect people to help uh, that they need into ways to get out of crisis. Now, another thing that I read uh, with this situation specifically was that the current mayor of St. Paul, um, Chris Coleman, and mayoral candidate Pat Harris called on the leadership of the city's police union to resign. And one of the quotes from Coleman's Facebook page says, David Titus and the board of the St. Paul Police Federation have embarrassed the good men and women of the St. Paul Police Department for too long. The racist attacks and hollow apologies of the last two days may have been aimed at one candidate, but they affect all people of color and all people of character. They are not worthy of St. Paul. What has been your reaction to the calls for uh, the resignation of members of the board? You know, I've really appreciated, you know, people all over the city who have stepped forward to let me know they have my back. Uh, people in every corner of this city have, have jumped forward to be supportive and to say we reject that kind of politics. We reject that kind that that perspective that says doing something like that is OK. You know, and so that's a part of the conversation. But we also want to make sure that we're focused on the bigger piece, which is not the way the police federation uh, treats you know, a mayoral candidate in public. But we know what's unique about that is the fact that it played out in the press. That's an interaction that happens every day in our neighborhoods uh, where, you know, people of color in particular uh, face a presumption of guilt uh, when they meet an officer. Uh, and even being the victim of a crime uh, can get you treated like a suspect. And that's something that really just uh, de- de- degrades that underlying trust that we have to know that we have with our law enforcement officers. And where can people go to to support the campaign, to find out more about the campaign? What help or support assistance? What do you need? You know, Election Day is coming up fast on November 7th. Uh, and we're pushing through the end right now. Our website is melvincarter.org. We need help just having the, doing the fundraising and raising the money that we need to get across the finish line. So we're asking folks to go to melvincarter.org uh, and chip in. If you got 25 bucks, if you got 100 bucks, whatever you can chip in will help us get there. If you're local in Minnesota, we're asking folks to come down to our campaign headquarters and pick up a volunteer shift and help us talk to voters or just spread the word on social media. Perfect. Thanks so much for joining us on Pod Save the People, and I consider you a friend of the pod. Thank you so much. I appreciate what you do. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining Pod Save the People. Make sure that you share with a friend. Make sure you rate it on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And I will see you back here next week. The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.